Hello, you're listening to Yarns from the Plane, a podcast for knitters, crocheters, and anyone who loves to play with yarn. Hello and welcome to episode 53. It's been a while, hasn't it? Sorry about that. I uh, always forget how rushed this final half term of school is and it's just been a bit bonkers. Um, I ended up going on the year six residential, which I wasn't expecting, and obviously it's making up all the time for the assessments and sorting everything else out. And suddenly here we are, halfway through July, and I haven't put a podcast episode out since the end of half term. So <laughs> apologies that it's been five weeks since I, I last sent one out. I have to say, you're still being slightly shortchanged now because I have still got lots and lots of things to do this weekend just to wrap up before the end of term on Thursday. So I'm not going to spend a long time chatting to you now. What I am going to do, however, is pop a postcard on the end of the show. And I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. So just to briefly sum up what has been going on here on the plane... Well, you'll be unsurprised to know that it still appears to be a frantic obsession with Woolsack cushions. Um, If any of you follow Woolsack UK on Twitter, you'll have seen that over the last few weeks, the number of athletes that are now getting their cushions is growing. It's absolutely superb. And we are at that sort of happy position now where we're actually needing to do a final push and get some more Um, cushions done we suspect for all the countries and teams that are contacting us so it's absolutely wonderful um, to be able to do that however it does mean that I still haven't actually managed to do anything for myself yet so the grand idea of joining in with the Knitmore's spackle spin along knit along where I was going to spin that Manx uh, locked in fleece to make that gorgeous cardigan Eden is still nowhere Hasn't, hasn't, hasn't moved I haven't spun in uh, since the middle of May. Spinning wheel sat here. Um, everything's sort of a bit flat with that. However, what has happened is that during the Year 6 residential, another number of staff and I and um, some of the girls knitted some squares to make a commemorative wool sack cushion uh, to commemorate our uh, the Year 6 residential. And in fact, some of what one of my squares was knitted in the presence of the Olympic torches that came past us, which was incredibly exciting. Um, and I'm teaching my the children in my class how to weave using my Ashford Knitters loom, and they're getting on really, really well. In fact, they're actually weaving in a soury style. Soury um, weaving is a Japanese well, it's almost a Japanese weaving philosophy, really, where from what I can gather, there's no strict plan on how your weaving will progress. It's not like following a pattern on a, a shaft loom. It's just very free, very easy. You don't worry if your salvages aren't neat. Um, you don't worry if there's slubs in the fabric that you produce. And the children using my knitter's loom have been doing things like passing the shuttle back two or three times before changing the shed. So you get a much thicker band of yarn and uh, through the warp threads and it's actually creating some really really interesting effects and they've kind of freed me up to not make me so OCD about it so it's really really interesting that's in um, that that's going to be a long strip of cream blue and brown yarn Uh, And again, I'm going to do the same with that as I'm going to do with green, which is cut it in half and then seam it down the middle to to put two strips of it together. Um, But they're very excited about being involved with that. They're loving it. And of course, it's the progression from the paper weaving that they do when they're younger. So it's absolutely brilliant. Um, You know, I I, I think actually, I think every every school should have one because they're so easy to use. Um, I'd love to see that, but... But there we are. So not every child in my class has had a go yet, but we've still got a few days, so we're okay. Um, other than that, it's business as usual here with the old wool sack. I'm surrounded by squares. Um, two podcast listener cushions are now 
finished and stuffed. A third, all the pieces are done the hand spun one, they just need to be um, soaked, blocked and steam, steamed together. And then the one that the lovely Caratrite made a back for, um, or a front for, whichever, depending on what I come up with. I have an idea for what I want to do with the, um, the other side of it, but I haven't done that yet. But the fact that we still need more cushions makes me not worry about that. I will get that one done, I'm quite confident. So I'll try and get some photos done today because the sun is out, actually. It's been a very, very wet summer, but the sun is out today. So I will try and get some photographs of the two cushions that are already finished and stuffed. Um, and I'll get them up. But other than that, that's just a, a quick update, really. I never made it to Woolfest in Cumbria because it was the day after the Year 6 residential and I just knew I would be too tired. Today is Fiber East and I had grand plans of going there where the Maldives Olympian team will be receiving their wool sack cushions. Um, and I'm not. I'm here. Because, again, there's too much assessment to do to really justify taking a day off. And that, that's it. I don't think I'm going to get to another wool show, which is a bit of a shame, because now I've really kind of got hooked on the weaving. I'm desperate to go and have a poke around with some weaving uh, yarns. But there we are. It's not a major problem. However, to make up for it, and for this very skimpy episode... I am going to put on a postcard. This postcard is a postcard from Oxford and it was recorded back in April. It's been edited um, and up and ready to, to be uploaded since, or it, or it was at the end of May, beginning of June. I'd put various bits of music in it. Um, wasn't 100% happy with the range, but thought it was okay. And then discovered um, an album called The Oxford Ramble by Magpie Lane, which had some nice Oxford-based folk songs on. And having sort of thought one or two of them, I thought, do you know, because I, I really didn't feel that I wanted to to use little clips of it without their permission, so I actually contacted them about using it. They were absolutely delighted, and so what I've done is re-edit the postcard so that all the music is from... The album The Oxford Wrangle, Ramble um, by Magpie Lane. So it is used with their consent, and I'm absolutely delighted um, with it. It's lovely, and it just sums up that whole folk side of, of Oxford for me. Their album, uh, The Oxford Ramble, is available on iTunes, but they have a website at magpielane.co.uk where all of their recordings are available. And I would like to say thank you very much to them because it's really given the Oxford postcard a very particular feel. And I'd like to thank them very much. So, cast yourselves back, back, back to April of this year. I've heard much talk of Oxford Town and fame, but I go thither. When sowing and bowing, all were done, and being gallant to weather. Me father reading to to greet that there, and I should go. But mother said that we should write, so we had to be too. So, I've just taken the bus into Oxford from Tame. I've come through Tittington and Wheatley and Headington, which is a place on the outskirts of Oxford. Um, it is classed as part of Oxford City, but it obviously was a separate um, settlement at one point. There is still some green land between the two. And as you come down um, through Headington, you come down to the part of Oxford known as St Clement's and the plain, which is where a number of key roads meet, the one from Headington, the Cowley Road, the Iffley Road. And as you then turn uh, right at that, you're then faced with the view up Oxford High Street, and the first arresting thing that you notice is Magdalen College Tower. Magdalen College is situated, it's one of the, the colleges of the University of Oxford, it's situated by Magdalen Bridge um, over the Isis, which is the name given to the River Thames here as it goes through Oxford. And it's really rather beautiful, the sun's shining. There is some traffic, hence the background noise, but it's not too bad. I've known it worse. 
and the sun shining on the warm stone and you get that real sense of Oxford's dreaming spires okay modeling tower isn't much of a spire but it's uh, or a tower but you know you get the drift it's got that sense that sense of Oxford now Magdalen Bridge is somewhere that I have been to on a number of occasions at very strange times of the day it is the focal point really for the May Day celebrations every year on May Day whatever day of the week that is so it's not linked to the actual bank holiday that's that we have on the nearest Monday or the first Monday in May but the actual link to the 1st of May celebrations start in Oxford to so you see in the coming of May morning and that sort of focuses around the choir of uh, Magdalen College I presume it's Magdalen College school choir singing in the May morning at six o'clock in the morning on the top of the church tower of Magdalen College tower you can't move down here it's heaving um, I first came in the day after my 18th birthday um, which is rather magical and um, I've done it a couple of times since not often because obviously the 1st of May is quite often a working day for me and uh, I really don't think I could see May morning in in Oxford and then manage to get it back in time for work you know, this is not going to happen is it um, but it is a lovely atmosphere the very first time I came there was a lot of folk music and country dancing I remember ripping my jeans um, as I fell over with a very enthusiastic uh, rendition of the Cumberland Square Eight outside Radcliffe Camera. Um, the last time I came, I think, was probably the day after my 30th birthday. So it's a while since, uh, since I've been. And uh, then that uh, involved me going into a pub at half six in the morning. I've never been to a pub that early. I have to say I wasn't drinking. I was there purely for a concert, for a gig. Um, Otway... John Otway, I think I may have mentioned him before, possibly not. Uh, anyway, he's a subject for a whole different podcast. But um, So I'm sitting here at Magdalen Bridge at the moment, and in the past, Magdalen Bridge has been the focus point where students will just leap from the bridge into the river. Fortunately, the river's not terribly deep at that point, so it can be quite dangerous. <laughs> Certainly for one period of time, they were all caged off. Um, and when I was last here, they were caged off so you couldn't leap from the bridge. But apparently within the last two, three years, they've taken the fencing away and basically worked on the basis that if you're stupid enough to fall in and break your back, that's your problem. So I'm beginning to walk up towards um, the main part of the city centre now. And um, just coming into view are the botanical gardens. Now, I'm not going to pop in there today because I don't think I've got time because there are other things I want to see. But it is an oasis of calm in Oxford so can you just tell I've got a whole run of buses coming past me now but it is a, a beautiful place it's by the side of the river lots of gorgeous things to see and ordinarily somewhere I would take for a little bit of you for a little bit of peace and quiet but I've got somewhere else in mind for later on today so I'm going to sign off for now and I'll catch up with you later when I'm in town man is but a man is life but a man he is much like a man he's here today and gone tomorrow so he's all gone down in an hour so now i have sung you a little short song i can no longer stay god bless you all both great and small and i wish you a happy day So I'm now on the high. I've walked past um, University College, which is not open to visitors today. I think a number of the colleges are not open to visitors at the moment. Um, they've got their signs out saying so. Um, I'm looking at all souls across the other side. Uh, I've walked past the turn for Merton. The thing is, I may have grown up in Oxfordshire and I may love Oxford, but I know very little about it in terms of its actual historical background towards the universities having discounted it as a place to study for myself because I knew that it wasn't right for me 
I'm afraid to say I know very little about it. However, what I have done... Oh. Another barrage of buses, sorry. Um, is I've just discovered somewhere that I didn't know was here. It's called the Grand Café. And it's on the high, just opposite Queen's Lane. And is apparently the site of the very first ever coffee house in England. Samuel Pepys mentions it in his diary, um, 1650, apparently. Um, set up as a, a room as part of the Angel Inn, which has now been subsumed as part of the uh, university's examination halls and rooms. Um, but uh, set up by um, a Jew, I think, called Jacob something. can't remember. I was reading it inside, but I'm afraid to say I've forgotten. How, how bad am I? Um, but obviously, 1650 is the time of the, the Commonwealth, rather than... Um, it, it was a period of, of British history where we no longer had a ruling king. And um, we had... Uh, Parliament and Oliver Cromwell, and Oliver Cromwell had a quite a widening and open um, view of the Jewish faith and Jews. So Jews were welcome to return to Britain and set up businesses, which is what they did. And a number of these first coffee houses um, in Oxford were set up by members of the Jewish community, which I found quite interesting. Um, but anyway, I've just been in, had very nice balsamic tomatoes on toast I think you can probably tell the quality of an establishment when your toast arrives on top of the tomatoes at a neat jaunty angle uh, with a little sprig of herbs on it as opposed to underneath the tomatoes which is where I'd be serving it at home but it was delicious and the coffee was absolutely delightful anyway, having refreshed onwards, laters I've stumbled upon a gorgeous little find. I have uh, turned off of the high and down Blue Boar Street. I'm still quite near a bit of traffic because I'm near actually the edge of St Aldate's, um, which isn't, you know, getting into the centre of Oxford. But I've discovered a little shop called Darnit and Stitch, which is a haberdasher's. And in fact, it's the only haberdasher's in Oxford, sad to say, such as the state of... Uh, many of our towns and cities here in, in Oxford but it's got a really interesting layout, it has some yarn not a great deal uh, fibre spates and Austerman step uh, well, uh, various things from the Austerman range actually seem to be um, the boast of it but they do have an Inti Dyer Oxford kitchen yarns now there isn't a great deal of her stuff in the shop and I think that I suspect that um, that maybe I, I had a little look on the, the website and um, she's not actually got her own online shop up and running at the moment. It had to shut down for a little while due to some family circumstances. I think she's uh, not been very well and she hasn't got it back up and running yet. Um, but it was listed as one of the... This, this place, Darnit and Stitch, is listed as one of the places uh, that still stocked her yarns. So I've gone in and I've bought myself a um, skein of sock yarn called sunflower although i have to say the color is more mustard to me than sunflower but there we are it's uh, really nice she seems to do um solid colors rather than variegated from what is in the shop but obviously there isn't a great deal of her yarn in the shop um, but she does a variety of weights but the shop is delightful it's tiny um it has some vintage um things in vintage machines in the window sewing machines um it has a whole box full of vintage zips for sale. It's arranged um, the yarn in colour groups with the ribbons and things also grouped together in these sort of almost like trunks. They are old, not quite, I don't know if they are trunks or whether they're big enough to be trunks, but they look like it. Three trunks on the side with um, fabrics underneath. Sells buttons, um, sells saju thread from France. Um, some fabrics, some patterns, um, Lulabelle 
Uh, bag patterns are for sale there. There are some needles and um, a variety of things. But it's just absolutely delightful. And the lady who's behind the counter seems delightful as well. It's been here since June 2010. So I've got my fingers well and truly crossed that it will stay here. It's a delightful little place. Well worth a look if you get a chance. So very nice. So that's Darn It and Stitch on uh, at 6 Ace and Old Eights. Now I'm on St Old Eights now. And, um, They're working on them. People who have ever watched Morse will um, recognise bits of St Old Eights. It's where the big police station is for Thames Valley Police in Oxford. Of course, in uh, in Morse it's termed Oxfordshire Police, but you know it's the it's the same building. Anyway, I have to say, this is confession time. I'm stood outside the town hall and um, outside the entrance, actually, to the Museum of Oxford. And I don't think I've ever been. Uh, trouble is, I'm not convinced that I'm going to get here today either, since... Um, oh, no. Well, it says opening times Tuesday to Saturday, 10 till 5. But, um... Ah from January 2011, closed on Fridays until further notice. There you go, that's why it doesn't look very open. So, yet again, I'm not going to get there. However, the thing about Oxford is, there are a great range of museums to get to. So I think I might just go and catch up with you again when I get to one of my favourites. So I'm now outside um, Keeble College, which is a much newer college, relatively speaking. Obviously, this is Oxford after all, but it's a um, Victorian era and is, as such, built with Victorian brick and the Victorian brick patterns and has been rather cruelly described as a dinosaur in a badly knitted fair hour sweater. And I suppose, you know, it doesn't fit in with so much of what is the recognised style of Oxford architecture. However, I rather like it because of that Victorian brickwork. I also rather like it because it is directly opposite several of the university museums. The Oxford University Museum of Natural History the Pitt Rivers Museum, which is my favourite museum, I think, in the entire world. It's a museum of anthropology and world, uh, world archaeology, and it's where I'm about to go now. It is just full of curiosities, and that's one of the reasons that I love it. Of course, I forgot that you get to the Pitt Rivers through the same entrance as the Natural History Museum. So I've walked in, and of course, I met with a gorgeous, galleried room, glass ceilinged, um, very Victorian in architecture, um, complete with a fabulous dinosaur skeleton. In fact, two fabulous dinosaur skeletons. And an overwhelming smell of mothballs. Now, I don't know if that's the clientele or whether that's the, uh, the stuffed cheetah with a big sign that says, please touch. Not quite sure I want to. And um, what have we got over here? A uh, Shetland pony, stuffed Shetland pony. So I suppose it could be those. Maybe they're, you know, mothbally. Um, but uh, an interesting, you know, greeting. The overwhelming smell of mothballs is quite stunning. Anyway, I'm going through now. And uh, past the Iguanodon skeleton and towards the fab T-Rex and uh, onto the pit rivers. I had forgotten as well that all the pillars that hold up this central atrium, each one is a different type of rock and inscribed on the back of it, it tells you what it is, granular school rock. Scrawl rock from Roche in Cornwall. Quatziferous porphyry from Treris in Cornwall. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, but anyway, into the Pitt Rivers Museum, which is so much darker 
experience. Let me see if I can find my favourite exhibit. Because it is the um, holidays, there are a lot of children here, so I hope that the background noise won't be too much for you. But the Pitt Rivers is an anthropology museum, so it's an awful lot about artefacts collected from different tribes around the world. And we've got cases that are very close together, much closer together than I remember last time I was here, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. My memory plays tricks on me. Um, but we've got sections of pottery from different areas of the world. Human form in art. Animal form in art. And from what I remember, it was a collection from one of those Victorian explorers. You know, they would go and discover tribes in darkest Africa and bring artefacts back. I suspect not always necessarily legitimately. Um, some of the things that are on display are very obviously precious and um, probably, you know, sacred to their tribe, but there are all sorts of things. Um, little musical instruments, tiny models, writing equipment. So we have here um, examples of Persian spoons for watering ink down, 1891. And they're all little, tiny little handwritten labels as well from the original collection. So here we've got trumpets, um, blast trumpets from ram's horns. We've got flutes in all kinds. Loops, writing and communication, but everything is so tightly placed together that it's minuscule. Religious figures and artifacts, zivers, just amazing. Lamellophones, whatever they are, some kind of instrument again, presumably. Ah, little boxes with the, um, I suppose, little pieces of. Um, they're, they're, they're little tongues, really, and you pluck at the tongues um, that vibrate, and um, they're, they're basically what Jews' harps come into, fall into, lamellophones, um, ancient bagpipes. It's just, you know, whistling arrows. It's just, if you ever get a chance to come, it is just, it's overwhelming in many ways. Um, all of the things that are here um, and the trouble with being here at the moment on my own is I don't have my camera with me um, my husband has my camera is coming down to meet me so I'm trying to record on my iPhone and take camera pictures as well with it which don't always quite work but I had just forgotten how overwhelming everything was here and how much there was so but I still keep searching for the thing that always used to fascinate me as a child. Um, a gruesome fascination. And I'll see if I can find it. So I've found the display that used to fascinate me as a child at the same time as sort of almost repulsing me. It's now grouped in um, a display case that's titled Treatment of Dead Enemies. And on one side of it, it contains a number of human skulls that have been ceremoniously punctured um, with sticks and spears or dressed with horns. As it says here, in the display case, in many cultures, including our own, the taking of heads from enemies was a socially approved form of violence with deep religious and cultural meanings. It was not seen simply as murder, but as a way of maintaining social order. In England, as shown by the print on display, heads of executed traitors were at one time displayed to deter others from such crimes. In most cultures, usually only the heads of high-ranking or high-profile people were taken, common criminals being treated very differently. Elaborate rituals surrounding both the killing of the victim and the display of the head have always accompanied this practice.
fetuses, as shown by the intricate decoration of heads from Nagaland in India. But it's the other side of the display case. That is the bit that used to catch me. The sansas, or shrunken heads. These shrunken heads, or sansas, are from the densely forested upper Amazon region between Peru and Ecuador. The Shua, Atua, Huambisa, and Aguarana peoples made them. Traditionally, men were encouraged to take enemy heads to prove their manhood and to avenge the death of relatives. When raids took place on closely related groups, the heads of sloths or monkeys would be substituted for human heads. Several of these examples are sloth heads. English explorers collected shrunken heads because they saw them as exotic curiosities. These sansas were collected between 1871 and 1936. There was such demand for shrunken heads by museums and private collectors that some were made from, for sale from the heads of people who had died naturally. Many monkey and sloth substitute heads were also sold. The practice of taking or shrinking the heads of enemies ended by the 1960s. These peoples still live in their homelands by hunting, fishing and horticulture as they always have. They fight against development and its effects upon them instead of enemy tribes. Shrunken heads were made by removing the skin and discarding the skull and brain. The skin was heated up for two hours and then dried with hot pebbles and sand. It was not boiled as this resulted in hair loss. Pebbles helped preserve facial features and shape the skin as it dried. The eyes and mouth were closed with cotton string and the face blackened with vegetable dye. The head was then strung on a cord and worn at a ritual feast by the man who had taken it. This was part of a ritual during which the victim's spirit was pacified and that person then became part of the killer's group. These peoples believed that human bodies existed in limited numbers. Capturing an enemy's head and adopting that person into one's group provided an extra symbolic body for one's own descendants to inhabit. So, there we are, the shrunken heads, of which there are one, two, three, four, five examples, and then several sloths and, and monkey heads as well. I was, um, in turn, fascinated and repulsed by these as a child, and uh, still remains the same to this day. But that's why I've brought you here. I don't know if it says something about me at all, but there we are. So... But I think it's time to step back out into the sunshine and see what awaits us outside. I'm now at one of my favourite spots for a quiet area of Oxford, which is sat with my back against the Bodleian Library looking at the Radcliffe camera. The Radcliffe camera is a circular building and it, it's a, it, for those of you who are sort of not familiar with what it looks at at all, if you imagine the uh, central cupola of the Capitol building in Washington, but instead of it being white, it's in the creamy stone you associate with Oxford and the lead roofing. And you have an idea of what it looks like. It's just the central cupola, though. It's, it sits directly on the ground there, no buildings underneath it. And it houses part of the Bodleian Library collection. I think it houses um, history and other aspects, I think. I don't know for sure. Um, but it's certainly... Um, part of the Bodleian Library. It's in a square, like I say, I'm sat with my back against the Bodleian at the moment, which I do believe is actually, um, could well be open. I might go and have a little nosy in a moment. Um, then on, um, behind the Radcliffe camera from where I'm sat at the moment, I can see the back of the University Church of St Mary the Virgin. I took a photograph of it earlier on the high. It's one of the dreaming spires that is currently covered in scaffolding. They must have known I was coming. Um, then to my uh, right, as I look, I have got Brazenose College. 
and to my left is All Souls. Brazenose, the name comes from Brazen Nose, which was the brass animal, oh, so, brass bronze, sorry, bronze animal door knocker on it. Um, brazen Nose, Brazen Nose. It is actually on land that was owned by Lincoln College, so I think that there are still quite close ties with those. On my left, as I'm looking, is All Souls College. Now, All Souls is, I have just discovered, <laughs> I hope this is reliable, just been listening to a very um, erudite young um, American gentleman, I would say, by the accent. I don't think it was Canadian accent, I think it was American accent, who was leading five more mature Americans on a little walking tour of Oxford. And apparently All Souls College uh, is an unusual college in Oxford because it is, has no students. It's a college for research fellows only, so there are no undergraduates there, and they only take two research fellows a year, sometimes they'll only take one if the quality isn't enough, to get in its very rigorous process, you have to sit four exams, two in your own subject and two general knowledge in which you can be asked anything. Once you've passed those exams, if you are of a, an appropriate standard, you would then be invited to interview. The interview panel is basically the entire college. So you would be uh, conducting your interview in front of 60 to 80 fellows of the college. How's that for performance anxiety? That would bring it on, wouldn't it? And then there are, um, you know, it obviously sounds like it's quite a, a convoluted experience and then and only then if you pass that you you be invited to um, take up a place they invite you apparently to a dinner um, at the end of the interview process by way of uh, saying thank you but apparently that is also part of the interview process um, although how true this is I do not know this young gentleman was telling his uh, group that you may be asked to do things like eat a banana with a knife and fork or eat a cherry pie that still has all the stones in to see how gracefully you spit out the pips. So, uh, you know, whether that is genuinely part of the interview process, I don't know. But I could imagine that it would be, because there are some strange and archaic rituals associated with um, Oxford colleges. In fact, there are strange and archaic rituals associated with all of the... Um, older, more established universities and colleges in Britain. Um, not just Oxford and, and Cambridge, but there we are. So I found that most enlightening. So I'm going to share that with you. Like I say, I have no idea if that is actually true or not. But I'm sat here in the sun and it's absolutely glorious. When first the world I did begin Through every rank and station To Oxford School Straight I came to view Every part of the nation Of all the rakish tricks I played I'll tell you in such a manner How I would spend me nights and days When I was an Oxford Scholar So I've just stumbled upon the most delightful exhibition. I've walked into the quad of the Bodleian and I recognise it from um, episodes of Morse and Lewis where they'd uh, often cross that quad. I hadn't realised it was open to the members of the public, um, but it is. And inside there was an exhibition on romance in the medieval times. So it was looking at the origins of um, romance stories, Arthurian legend, things like that, and included several examples of very old texts um, dating from maybe the uh, 12th or 13th century. So, absolutely delightful. Also, interestingly enough, a letter um, from the British Board of Film Censors to um, Monty Python regarding their application for um, a certificate for Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is one of my favourite films. Um, it recognised that obviously a lot of the bloodletting was supposed to be funny, but that there were some examples where it just felt it was too far. And it's delightfully quaint. Um, you know, dated 1975. So, absolutely lovely. Anyway, um, I've just come out. It was just an absolute delight. It was wonderful. So I'm now skirting around the side of the Sheldonian Theatre, and I'm about to step out onto Broad Street, which is... Um, as one would think from the name, quite broad and quite often full of bicycles. <laughs> now, what I know as the more modern 
Bodleian Library on Broad Street, opposite the old bit in the Sheldonian Theatre, is actually undergoing some major renovation works at the moment. It looks like they're keeping the shell, but ripping the inside out completely. And I had forgotten, having just walked around the, the side, um, mentioned, uh, seen some of the things that are reading there, that actually part of the Bodleian complex involves an underground tunnel between the old Bodrian library at the Quad, which I was in before, and the Radcliffe camera. And also um, the Convocation House, which is where Parliament was held during the Civil War. Because when Charles I was chased from London in the Civil War, he took refuge in Oxford, and Oxford became his capital city, which of course is an interesting concept because where I grew up, Tame, is only 13 miles away, and Tame was the place of education, my old school, was the, the place where John Hamden was educated, who was a general in the Civil War for the parliamentarian side, and in fact he actually died in the town after injuries that he... Um, got in the Battle of Chowgrove and it's an interesting point as to whether the town itself would have been um, Republican or Royalist but um, two of the people who ultimately signed the death warrant for Charles I which led to his execution were members of uh, or old Timensians, people from my school so one gets the feeling that uh, Although the city may well have been royalist, the surrounding areas of Oxfordshire may well have been parliamentarian. I'm now walking up the broad to meet my husband and it's interesting to see that both Trinity and Balliol are open to visitors today. But since I'm due to be meeting him, I think it's a bit unfair to dive in. But uh, they do give a little glimpse inside of that sequestered world. And of course, this being Broad Street, as I've mentioned before, bikes as far as the eye can see. dates again and uh, we've come down to Christchurch so we stood by the meadows if we were to take a few minutes walk uh, down to our right we'd get down to the river to the Isis and uh, by turning left we'll just go into Christchurch and go into the cathedral itself I'm looking at something that we've decided uh, in the distance there are some deer in the meadow and uh, cows cross the other side my husband has decided that he's very firmly going to keep his mouth shut and he's not going to say anything. So he's not going to share his memories of the romantic day I picked him up from the station with a small half bottle of champagne and a couple of glasses. And we sat by the meadows, by the river, drinking champagne. Today, sadly, we have one piece of strawberry flapjack, half a bottle of flavoured water, and the inability to get up again when we've sat down on the grass. Somehow, I don't think we're going to be recapturing the moment. He's shaking his head. Listeners, if you could but see. Uh, he's refusing to speak at all. <laughs> anyway, catch you later. Now the winter is gone and the summer is come And the meadows look pleasant and gay I met a young damsel, so sweetly sang she her cheeks like the blossoms of May. I says, fair maiden, how came you here In the meadows this morning so soon? The maid, she replied, for to gather some May. I suspect, dear listener, that you're not going to hear anything further from my husband over the next little while. We've just paid to come into Christchurch. It's the first thing I've had to pay for all day, and he's gone apoplectic with shock. Uh, not so much that the fact that we need to pay, although that bothers him to pay into a cathedral, but how much? Uh, £8 per person. But um, there we are. I will deal with his apoplexy anon. <laughs> so I'm stood in... Tom Quad, which is the main quad of Christchurch, and uh, looking at Tom Tower, which is named after the bell, Great Tom, designed by Christopher Wren, 
and it will be a familiar sight to those of you who saw Brideshead Revisited because I do believe that Sebastian Flight went to Christchurch and they filmed here. It's uh, rather evocative and really rather gorgeous. I was attempting to record Great Tom chiming three o'clock but unfortunately a large police car came tearing past with full sirens blazing at the time so uh, I didn't but it's really rather peaceful um, especially now the big gaggle of tourists have moved on to the cathedral which is where we're going next Great Tom is cast and Christchurch bells ring one, two, three, four, five, six, and Tom comes last. Great Tom is cast, and Christchurch bells ring and Christchurch bells ring one, two, three, four, five, six, and Tom comes last. So I've moved out of Christchurch now. Actually, having gone around the cathedral, it's lovely. Dedicated to St. Frideswide, who was the um, a Saxon princess who became a nun, um, was pursued by the king who succeeded her father and uh, rebuffed him. I think he turned blind when he attempted to chase her back into Oxford. Anyway, her uh, relics were at the shrine there until the Reformation. Um, but there are some lovely things in there. A couple of very nice windows um, by Edward Byrne-Jones of the Pre-Raphaelites. And uh, just a really rather nice cathedral. So we then uh, came out and uh, have grabbed a cup of coffee and we've now made it to the Ashmolean Museum which is on Bowman Street opposite the Randolph Hotel and uh, another university um, museum that I'm really rather fond of I think this has got quite a range of things in it from what I remember the nice thing about Christchurch which I, I didn't mention and I've only just remembered is a uh, well, not a nice thing, I suppose, just an interesting thing. Um, one of the deans who actually commissioned Wren to build Tom Tower was John Fell. I do not love thee, Dr. Fell. Um, it's a nursery rhyme that uh, not very many people remember these days. Anyway, he uh, went to um, my school. So there you go, another link, with, uh, as if you're really, really interested in that. Has um, did a previous, um, another uh, ex-Christchurch scholar Howard Goodall the composer so next time you listen to the theme tune of Blackadder just bear that in mind all the genesis of Christchurch so I'm going through the new part of the back of the Ashmolean I think it was um, open to this new section, this expansion in 2009. But the Ashmolean was founded in 1683 and is Britain's first public museum. As such, it has a real range of things. And we're just coming now into a gallery full of stringed instruments, lutes and violins and cellos. So we finished in the Ashmolean the University's Museum of Art and Archaeology. We've seen the Canalettos and some uh, Stradivarius and some Roman coins from the Didcot Hoard. Gold coins. Beautiful they are. Polished lovely. And we're now at the top of Bowman Street looking at the Martyrs Memorial. The Martyrs Memorial dedicates, um, is dedicated to the memory of Cranmer, Latimer and Ridley three bishops who were put to death by Mary Tudor, otherwise known as Bloody Mary, for their Protestant beliefs. I don't think it marks the actual spot in the um, in Oxford where it happened, but it's not far from it. And I don't know that they were burned all three together, but um, there we are. I think that pretty much concludes our tour, our little postcard from Oxford. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, but it's definitely time to go home and put my feet up now. Bye. 
The sun being low, then we begun to think on going home. But one thing more we saw before we got quite out of town. We went to pace and being in haste, the fear of being benighted. Two huge great things that strutting within, and Ellen and I were frighted. We went to pace and being in haste, the fear of being benighted. Two huge great things that strutting within, and Ellen and I were frighted. Bloody weapons in their hands stood ready there for murder. So we went back and took our men away. We trotted on with stories enough to tell father and mother and little sister Joan. So we went back and took our men away. We trotted on with stories enough to tell father and mother and little sister Joan. So there you have it, a somewhat delayed, but nevertheless delivered postcard from Oxford. As a little amen addendum, I'd just like to say that um, Oxford Kitchen Yarns are now up and running again. She has her shop up, and I'll put the links in the show notes. Um, there will be links for everything that I've mentioned that um, you might want to have a look at in the show notes, if there isn't anything. Um, in terms of general history, then hopefully you'll be able to do, do a little bit of search for it. It was lovely. I can't believe that it's now um, over three months since I recorded that, and it's taken me so long to get around to getting it properly edited and sorted and uploaded. I'd like to say thanks again to Magpie Lane for very generously letting me use their music in the postcard, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Their Website is www.magpilane.co.uk and there are links to all of their records up there. You can contact me through all the usual routes by leaving a message over on the show page at www.yarnsfromtheplane.podbean.com or www.yarnsfromtheplane.blogspot.com We've got a Ravelry group so come on over and say hello there. We have a listener's map, which now has my first African listener pinned on it. I'm sure there are others. Please feel free to stick a pin in to let me know where you are. You can always message me over on Ravelry, where I'm Tales from the Plane, and send me a tweet where I'm Tales from Plane. You can, of course, email me at yarnsfromtheplane at googlemail.com. I do love to hear from my listeners. It's a real great boost. So, once again, until next time, take care. Bye. You've been listening to Yarns from the Plain. Show notes and links are available at the Yarns from the Plain show page at yarnsfromtheplain.podbean.com. If you'd like to contact the show, you can leave a comment over there on the show page, or you can email me at yarnsfromtheplain at googlemail.com or message me on Ravelry, where I'm tales from the plane. Until next time, take care, and thanks for listening. <laughs>